are we? Yeah, travelling all right. What about yourself? Yeah, you know, not too bad. Not too bad as far as things go. Yes, I'm just enjoying the change of environment up here at uh, Sydney as I'm catching up with some some family. So, yeah, nice to sort of uh, head north for a little bit. Oh, very nice. Good morning. Good morning, Anger. How is it going? It's going pretty well. Yeah, pretty tickety-boo this uh, this end. Excellent. Glad to hear it. What about you? How are you? How are you, how are you going? I am hungover. <laughs> uh, so uh, last night was a Greens fundraiser down here in Tasmania. And um, I think it was a very clear distinction of like the liminal phase that the Greens are going through. Uh, so it was an organized whiskey night. Um, but there were very an few people there. Organized whiskey night. Yeah, so basically um, we got donated a whole bunch of whiskey from various people who like the greens and have whiskey. Um, And a dude who is also a whiskey entrepreneur, I guess, um, uh, led us through tasting notes and uh, told us all about all the different whiskeys we were drinking. And as someone who like knows whiskey pretty well, can I just say that for the price of $50, we were really getting our money's worth. Like we were drinking some absolutely amazing stuff, um, which kind of makes it a little bit surprising that it wasn't significantly better uh, populated than it was. But regardless, and, and it that, was amazing. That, that's uh, because of this particular entrepreneur. That's his label, or what he's able to develop, or just because he started no. them. Um, uh, he he donated one bottle. Um, uh, but we got other bottles donated through other sources, and then everyone paid fifty bucks to go and like taste them and listen to the talk. Oh, and, I see. Yep. Um, uh, and yeah, it. I, as someone who has drunk a lot of whiskey both here and in Scotland, that was an absolute bargain. <laughs> oh. So, I guess for anyone who's listening, if there's something like that happening near you, uh, if it's for a political party that you don't mind giving some money to, maybe just go along, like. You're going to be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, look, I suppose from from being drunk to being drunk with power, uh, Australian <laughs> politics, over to you, Apricot. Thank you. Now, just before we start, I just want to say a happy Father's Day to all the fathers in Australia. Um, yep. Yeah, that's it. We might just jump into it. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen the title of uh, this week's episode, but I've called it a week of albatrosses because I feel like a lot of people have albatrosses hanging around their necks at the moment. Um, Would you guys agree with that basic assessment at this point? Well, it's going to depend who you're labelling as albatrosses, but (laughs) that's why I chuckled when when I saw the title. Uh, In essence, yes. I appreciate the pun, if nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we might move on to the first topic, uh, which is that the Albanese government is still standing by its stage three tax cuts. Uh, We've got an article from The Guardian here uh, with the title, Anthony Albanese says he will stand by stage three tax cuts as Liberal MP joins calls to scrap them. At the point where we have now Liberal MPs going, hey, I don't need a tax cut. Uh, with Albanese going, no, yes, you do. Um, what kind of dimension have we fallen into? Um, well, look, I, it doesn't cost the Liberal MP anything to say that. And um, the other thing is that uh, Labour uh, definitely, and to a lesser extent the Greens, although I'm not actually sure how much um, they do this, um, they're very disciplined uh, in their ranks, which means that if someone like attacks Labour, you can't try and just get one or two people to cross the floor. The Liberals and the Nationals don't do that. Um, they think it's much; it makes them a much more democratic party. I tend to disagree, um, but that's just me. Uh, but what that means is that when there are these policies like this, you can have a few backbenchers speak out against it, even if the rest of the Liberal Party um, is like is the ones that put through the tax cuts, and it makes it look like Labor's out of touch. Uh, so, honestly, the fact that one Liberal MP is saying something doesn't really kind of register as anything, apart from they've found something that they can attack Labor on. Mm. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd probably tend to agree that that's, that's slightly opportunistic on that side. 
Uh, it's, it might even uh, come through in future in further discussions today, but I think that uh, almost enforced unity that uh, that Labor and the coalition seem to have on their parties. I understand it's not on on everything, but as a general rule, I think that enforced unity may actually. Uh, I know, but work work against them when you look at some of the freedom that the Greens have got, but also, as possibly I'll observe later on, that uh, that extra freedom does come with costs for the, the Greens. But look, I'm with you on this one, Inga. That, uh, that particular thing just seemed like a little bit of a, an opportunistic grab. Mm. So I've, I've heard some people basically say at the moment, Albo and Labour are basically kind of just waiting for public pressure to build so that they can say, oh, look, this is why we have to break an election promise um, because everyone's <laughs> mad at us. <laughs> how accurate do you think that is? Like, like, like the idea being that they actually really do want to scrap these stage three tax cuts and they do want to break that promise. They just need that, like, inciting uh, push. Yeah, look, I, I, I tend to... Disagree. I, I wouldn't discount that as a as a strategy, but I my opinion is that I think on this one uh, Albanese is showing some strength and consistency by supporting it and making people feel glad that they have that they well making people feel uh, comfortable that he's been voted into power and isn't getting in and changing everything around. It means if you weren't in favour of Albanese, you can say, oh, well, at least he's not wrecking things. And if you are in favour of Albanese, you can say, I knew that when I, I voted for him. So I'd never discount that they're going to, you know, suddenly have a coming to God uh, moment and, and change the change the, uh, the tax cuts as, uh, as Hawke did. But I think Albanese is playing this co correctly and you know, I must must be getting ill because I think this is three weeks in a row that I've uh, supported the bureaucrats. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a friend who's a, um, a Labour rusted-on supporter, I guess is probably the best way of referring to him. Um, and he uh, presented like a little bit of context saying that Labour lost the election in 2019 over attacks. Um, which was the franking credits and negative gearing. Um, uh, they lost the 2010, or they fell into the 2010 minority government on a tax. It lost in 2013 on tax. It lost in 2004 on tax. Um, uh, or at least that's one of the things which the Liberals were able to very effectively attack them on. Um, so going into uh, this uh, parliamentary period, it does feel very much that regardless of whether or not they would be more inclined to get rid of these tax cuts, they didn't platform it during the election, um, and they don't want to see themselves as uh, flip-flopping uh, on it or going back against an election promise because that just makes it mm. easier for them to be only a one- or two-term government. Uh, so I think it does kind of come into covering um, themselves a little bit, no matter what they might be inclined to do. Uh, with that in mind... The stage three tax cuts are only due to happen for one year out of the three years of this parliamentary term. At the end of that, uh, moving into the next one, they can say, look, we've had the stage three tax cuts, cost a bit of money, we don't really need it. Um, we're going to abolish it in the next term of parliament. And that way they get a mandate uh, from the uh, uh, people of Australia to be able to do that. But they didn't come into it with this election. Um, and so I don't think they're going to do it. It does, though, give them a very easy place to be wedged by the Greens. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Um, that's true. But I take your point on, you know, the idea of having a mandate later on to, you know, get rid of them again. Um, but doesn't that just kind of open them up to attacks again in, like, kind of put them in that same position before as you were talking about, you know, in 2010, 2013, 2019? Um, and is this whole kind of debacle really not kind of a sign or a bit of a soft admission of the weakness of Labour campaigning in general? Like, if they actually can't convince voters, this attack that's been run against them now multiple times, um, what are they doing? Well, this was the problem with them running a quote-unquote small-target campaign. 
Um, it meant that they had a mandate for some things, um, but the really bold plan that they had in 2019, which arguably Australia needs now, um, they don't have a mandate to do that, and it opens them up from uh, being attacked from the right if they do try and do stuff like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that neither of you sort of mentioned the, the Greens as much in the mix, and obviously we're just sort of getting into it. But uh, I think that's, I know, I suppose I think that's an interesting interesting comment you said, Apricot. I just, I, I just feel like the Greens here are being uh, presented with a, a huge opportunity to, to push their platform to a larger number, larger number of people who now might have entertained some hope that uh, Labor was going to do something about the tax cuts, but now it's become apparent. And I, I'm seeing this as a big opening for the Greens. I mean, uh, Bant had said, there's an article in The Guardian, 30th of August, 2022, stage three tax cuts, richest 1% of Australians will save as much as poorest 65% combined analysis shows by Josh Butler. And whilst it was it was riddled into everywhere with interpretations by everywhere on the, the figures and all carefully massaged to support each side's position, Bant's, uh, the main point from Bant on this was Adam Bant says, changes will turbocharge inequality as parliamentary budget office analysis finds men will benefit the most. And I thought it was interesting seeing how much mileage now uh, the Greens can get out of this because you've essentially got the two majors locked into a position and it becomes a real uh, perception of the Greens almost in an opposition sense, which I, we've discussed before, Apricot. It's, uh, it's almost a position that Band has, has been pushing uh, to elevate the Greens, but these particular tax cuts, I think, are playing highly into the into the hands of the Greens. I tend to agree with mm. you, um, uh, but if uh, because I am a member of the Greens, I'm not going to push that necessarily too hard, uh, because yep. it is very much in my interest uh, for uh, Labor to continue with the stage three tax cuts and wedge themselves further towards the left. Huh. <laughs> Uh, no, I I tend to concur. Um, I think we will see more of this, though, in the next month or so as the government moves into, like, budget mode. Um, mm. Because every kind of loser from the budget will kind of really themselves go, but what about the stage three tax cuts? Like, why why are we losing out on this when you're doing this terrible economic... But policy? again, it doesn't yeah. start for a couple of years. Uh, so yeah. the stage three tax cuts are only due to be legislated in the last year of this uh, government, uh, which means that as much as the Greens can push on the, if we got rid of the stage three tax cuts, we could do all of those things. Um, the context mm -hmm. that they all use is this is how much money we would save over 10 years, uh, which is fair enough. Yeah. Like 10 years is the about the amount of time it takes to really start and get a government program running well. But... I don't think they're going to be around for 10 years. I think they're going to be around for maximum one year. That's probably it. Um, and if Labor ends up uh, with a minority government in the next um, parliament and they scrap the tax cuts uh, with the Greens, they're going to be going, oh, no, this is so terrible. We have all this money now that we can use for literally anything else. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think suppose. there's a... Uh, just just to uh, get a little bit of a sample of the people who the in the, the chat that have got a couple of comments. Uh, ben, a lot, uh, first off, Aussie Mozzie, we've seen your, your comment. We'll leave that there for people to read. It's just off topic of this one. Uh, from one of our regular listeners, Ben Along, we've got, I think Labor are deliberately waiting to be seen to bow to public pressure. They will eventually say they have listened to the people and scrapped their tax cuts. Uh, and a hello from uh, Cannabis King 382 who's tending to agree with Apricot and what I said. And finally, uh, Necrone, Necrone, I don't think everyday people really care about tax cuts all that much. I only hear it talked about in political circles, cost of living and inflation is more front of mind, which I think is a valid point. But I read them out then, uh, Anger, because I think it tied in with what you were saying in the time frame, uh, 
whilst you're technically correct on the time frame, I think the way it's portrayed in the media is it's as something immediate that's about to be happening and it's, uh, you know, the government's about to be either reaching into your pocket or giving you something and the time frame is not getting a lot of... Uh, a lot of space in words because it doesn't suit the current nar narrative, which is why I think Apricot's point that it will be used as a, a tool by the, the losers, I think it will get utilised for that reason because I think the average person doesn't understand the technicalities as you just explained them. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, it's, I mean, it's politics. It's a game of perception. Uh, yep. So um, I disagree to a certain extent uh, with the comment from uh, Nicrone, um or Nicrone or however you pronounce it, uh, in that, uh, yes, cost of living uh, is at the forefront of people's minds. Um, but if that's at the forefront of people's minds, while the big news stories are about a tax cut going to, among everyone else, politicians on $200,000 a year, um, that is uh, going to... Uh, wedge labor a little bit like it does i think turn into a bit of pol bigger political story um uh for the general um man on the bondi tram uh than it would otherwise mm. 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 on that note we might move to our next albatross um <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is poor matthew guy um <laughs> there's an article person. here from <laughs> there's an article here from the 31st of august uh titled love fest between new south wales and victorian premiers on full display while matthew guy is out of sight um, for those who don't know daniel andrews and dominic perriger uh the premiers of new south wales and victoria one Labour, one Liberal, have gotten together and they've announced some new policies and they had a really kind of really friendly press conference recently um, where uh, I believe Dominic even kind of uh, rebuffed the idea that the, that the health system in Victoria is struggling, which is like a key argument currently made by the Victorian Liberals. Mm. Um, this probably doesn't help Matthew Guy's chances in November, does it? What chances? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, there is no downside to Dominic Perrette, uh being close to Matthew Guy at this point, because let's face it, he's not going to be elected the next premier of uh, Victoria. Uh, so, and Dominic Perrette is on the Christian right uh, of the Liberal Party um, in Australia. Uh, and he is definitely perceived that way. The fact that he's um, had his, I think, seventh child just after he became the Premier did not help with that at all. Uh, so being close to Labour and showing that he can work with Labour, especially given the context of the last New South Wales Premier, who was very, very critical um, of Dan Andrews, uh, shows for the next New South Wales election that, you know, he's a reasonable guy. He's not like those old Liberals who made everything a... Um, partisan kind of case he can work across the aisle um, for him there's no downside to uh, being friendly in public with Daniel Andrews uh, and it's not like it's going to hurt the chances of Matthew Guy becoming the next premier <laughs> I, I will actually just take your point there because I hadn't considered this um, I hadn't considered the idea that Perger being friendly with Andrews may help Perger in the November, sorry, in the New South Wales election next year. How many Daniel Andrews fans are there in New South Wales? Um, I mean, it doesn't really yeah. matter uh, because people know the name of Daniel Andrews, and I don't think anyone in New South Wales would be able to name the leader of the Labour Party, the state Labour Party there. Um, it's uh, it's just seen as kind of like being a grown-up. Um uh, at least that's the way I see it. Uh, and after the Morrison brand of politics for the past four years or so, um, and uh, like a lot of uh, kind of casting everything to blame against Labour, not working with Labour, all of that kind of stuff, I think just kind of like being a grown-up and uh, working with the opposition, even if it's the opposition who are running another state, just makes you seem like a better politician. What do you think, Ardeep? Yeah, look, I tend to I, I tend to agree with that. 
that assessment you just said there, there, Inga. I, my, because I've got uh, you know, family and friends up here in, in Sydney, uh, I think Andrew's, uh, for a, a lot of people, is uh, is perceived fairly positively, and I certainly would say that uh, he's he's well known to uh, a number of people up there. He's he's got you know he's he's got good brand recognition. Mm. I mean you know he's uh, he, press conferences and that during the uh, the pandemic that got him some notoriety. Uh, he certainly gets. He certainly is getting good press, and I think he's getting good press uh, or, or good media around Australia. And my my personal anecdotal experience is that he's he's well known here, and a lot of people seem to be sympathetic to. Um, oh, well, I won't, won't say seem to be sympathetic to what he uh, he did during the uh, the pandemic. Much much as I have different opinions on that as a Victorian, uh, but that is my perception. So I'd, I'd agree on that. I think, too, there's also the the other angle of this that, you know, there's no doubt about it that uh, along with Western Australia, uh, Victoria and New South Wales are, are very powerful states. I, I suppose you'd have to include Queensland, but if you turn in terms of uh, like a real block of, of power, and the two of them uniting is in the uh, sense of the enemy of my enemy. Uh, what is sorry? What is it? What's that? The the what's the that, enemy of my saying? enemy is my friend. That's it. Thank you. That's where I was going. Uh, reading between the the lines, there seem to be uh, the unity allows them to actually be able to lever what they need for their states against the federal government. I think there's a certain uh, mutual benefit to to teaming up and realizing that they can be a bit of a powerhouse to get a little bit more for their their two states. Yeah, absolutely. So, Western Australia, beware! We're coming for your money again. Well, look, <laughs> it, it might be it might be that, but yeah, look, I, I suppose I'm always I'm always suspicious when. Uh, when you've got someone like from two sides of the coins uh, telling us how in in harmony they are, that's normally the most uh, that that's when I worry the most about government when both sides are agreeing because it well, usually means that we're on the receiving end. That kind of jumps very much into the um, uh, what the Greens have been pushing in trying to wedge Labor for such a long time, kind of saying, okay, do you want an actual? different party because it's not going to be either of the major ones mm. um there's actually there's a fantastic quote uh, i'll see if i can find it um uh, this is from uh liberal senator ann rustin uh on the channel 10 election footage she says uh in regards to labor and the liberals i think we worked very well together i think one of the things the australian public probably don't know is the amount of time legislation goes through both houses of parliament with the support of the two major parties um, which kind of goes into what you're saying is that at the end of the day, as much as we see this big pantomime of Liberal and Labour being at each other's throats, they do work together and they do agree on a lot of things uh, when it comes to running the country. Yep. Very true. Very true. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Which is probably why I worry so much because of how often they agree. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the Victorian election with the uh, quote-unquote Teals um, and the Greens uh, in terms of... like, I mean, what happens if the Greens end up with more seats than the Liberal Party? I think it's unlikely. Um, but do they become the opposition? Well, I'll tell you I, what, the, I think the book is... Convention, book is yes. But by convention, yeah, the Greens would become the official opposition in Victoria. Um which would be very, very bizarre. <laughs> I mean, it would be bizarre for the Greens in terms of brand recognition. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. But like this, this <laughs> maybe... does go into um, a, like what is the opposition in terms of um, what resources they're given. Uh, so uh, some of our listeners probably know at the last state election in Western Australia, um, I think which was called by Anthony Green after 15 minutes of looking at the results, which is the fastest <laughs> he's ever done that. 
Um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say maybe 20. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, the Liberal Party has two seats and complete gender equality because, you know, one guy, one girl. Um, I, but that means that actually there's a whole bunch of things which the official opposition has access to. They technically weren't uh, supposed to be getting because they weren't a big enough party to be the official opposition. Yeah. Um, they suddenly, because like, you're you're 100% correct there. The opposition tends to have, you know, dedicated offices, for example, which they had to vacate um, because, like, this isn't the Liberal Party office building. This is the opposition's building. And sorry, you need to leave now. The Nationals are technically the opposition. Um, <laughs> it's oh, a very that, that bizarre. Did, that did not sit well with me. Oh. <laughs> Look, it is bizarre. I, I, I tell you what, if I was a, a, a bookie getting uh, getting ready for the, the Victorian election, I'd be finding a lot of ways to lay off my bets because I, I think anybody who comes out at this point and says with any level of certainty that they know what's going to happen, I, I think they're kidding themselves. Yeah. Now, look, I, I think uh, Matthew Guy winning is, is way down low there. But the federal election and the change in the electorate has shown us that there are lots of things that are possible that were never expected. So it's, it's hotting up to be a very interesting time in Victoria. Indeed. Just, I want to know, um, in terms of all, like, taking your point about all this change and how anything's possible now, you know, and our political establishment has sort of been upended a little bit, um, is there more chance of the Greens becoming the official opposition than Matthew Guy becoming Premier at this point? I don't know anywhere near enough about Victorian politics to comment. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers. <laughs> Look, you're, you're, a, you're a, very, a, a, a real wonk with the, the politics Apricot, but I'm telling you my personal opinion. If I had to uh, put a hundred bucks down on either or on that, I would be putting my hundred bucks on the Green becoming an opposition rather than Matthew Guy being elected. That's a that's a sh- shocking. Shocking disappointment for you guys. <laughs> First, he loses Dominic's endorsement, and now he's lost our deeds. Oh yeah, no! He'll yeah, <laughs> be crushed. <laughs> In fact, even I'm just noticed Ben along has said, if Matthew Guy becomes Premier of Victoria, I will run naked around the around the MCG. Now, I haven't met Ben along in person, um, so. I don't know how high the level of risk there is, but I'm. <laughs> I Someone is going to hold him to that if it happens. Well, in fact, uh, who is it? Gray Warden one three three says I screenshotted this. So look, you've you you heard it on there. It's on record now. Been along. If uh, if Matthew Guy, if Matthew Guy uh, comes in, you'll run naked around the MCG, and I'll tell you what, Ben along, <laughs> if he gets in. And you do go through with that promise. I will join you, and I'll be at the finish line with a couple of beers for you. But I'm not going to join you. Uh, we I should probably move on from this. Um... I'm a very unattractive man. So <laughs> <laughs> we should possibly move on from this lovely uh, image that you've conjured up in our brains. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Um, so. In the spirit of albatrosses again, we might move on to the Greens and their position on the voice to Parliament. Uh, There's been an article this week uh, where Lydia Thorpe described the voice as a waste of money, essentially wanting those funds to be spent on other things to uh, help Indigenous communities. Um, And I I think it really kind of just signalled a bit of confusion that there is because on one hand you've got Lydia Thorpe saying these things hmm. and then you've got Adam Bant saying, Oh no, but we're, we're still negotiating in good faith. Um, it, it doesn't look that good in my opinion. I don't think it's really good in terms like, you know, you said before anger politics is perception. Um, and I think the perception of the greens on the voice at the moment is rather confusing. Hmm. Uh, what would you guys think? I'll do You want to go first? Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm glad you raised that uh, because I did. I, I was hoping to get a, a bit more of an insight uh, f- 
from you and uh, and anger on that but you you've just confirmed what i was was seeing there i found that confusing as uh you know as a member of the public looking on to see that there was that that little bit of uh a difficult partnership between bent and thought thorpe on that it came out and it was almost like bent had to say yeah well that's valid but it was a slight little i don't know whether you'd say a tap on the the wrist but it was a what i would say is almost a, an uncharacteristic display of uh of disunity in some ways what i alluded to earlier in the the conversation about how i was going to talk about what could be viewed as a strength with the greens it comes into it with this um uh, comes into the into it with this situation because the uh where was it there was a quote did i put it down uh yeah look i'm i'm, I'm not sure i can't see the, the the quote exactly but it was to the it was to the effect that uh if the process goes ahead then bent may not be necessarily presenting a united party because some senators will actually be able to say look i know our party's position but i'm free to uh, put my position forward and i disagree with it and the reason why i think that's a strength is labor can't afford just to concentrate on band and thorpe and try and work them into uh, the position they want and think the party will go along they have to actually be concerned about the party as a whole and all the all, all the elected uh, elected people within that and i think that it's almost like a, a guerrilla cells versus capturing the capital city and suddenly you've, you've won i think that's actually a strength but i think perceptually it's a little bit of an issue for me seeing bant and thorpe not quite 100 percent agreeing in public and for something that is so important as the voice i think that's a bit of a negative for the greens so the greens position on the voice has changed uh, a couple of times over the past six or so years ago um you can find a couple of positions uh which they said back in 2018 where they said you know voice first then so there's three kind of aspects to this there's voice truth and treaty um and at the moment labor is saying we're going to do voice first then truth and treaty and the greens are saying we would rather do truth and treaty first and then voice so that's kind of what the difference really is um the uluru statement from the heart um, and a lot of the Aboriginal groups behind that seem to be uh, are prioritizing the voice before truth and treaty. So that's kind of Labor's position. Um, but hmm. it's uh, hashtag not all Aboriginal people uh, are doing that. Um, and Lydia Thorpe is one of the people who is saying, no, we should do truth and treaty before we do voice. Um, the Greens have a, uh, and I think Apricot Bay, you'll know a little bit more about this. Um, there's a section of the Greens called the Black Greens, which is the Indigenous members of the Greens Party. Um, I don't know if they've come out with a specific statement, but Lydia Thorpe is definitely kind of one of the people who uh, is prominent within that group. Um, and so the position of the Greens seems to be based around the position of the Black Greens at the moment in terms of where we're going. Now, with that in mind, I think Labor and the Greens agree on the fact that this is an important thing that we should get done. They disagree on the order um in how it should be getting done uh, how, cru and, how cru crucial do you think that is that disagreement on the the order um well if you want to find green senators saying really inflammatory stuff it's pretty easy but i looked at all of the articles about say lydia thorpe talking about um the fact that having a referendum is a waste of money and her points aren't inflammatory they're being built up uh by the media to look more aggressive than they are which right. if you've seen lydia thought talking you don't need to do that about stuff which she is actually very um hmm. aggressively passionate about yeah. uh so i think this kind of does come into the entire it's a bit of a media circus at the moment um as a greens member it is uncomfortable watching this happen uh but i i don't really think it's as big as the media is currently portraying it to be Mm, I 
I guess we'll have to see. Um, I I would also concur with Anger and say that, you know, as a Green member, it is a bit uncomfortable when you see, like, um, even just stripping away, like, the personalities. At this point, we do have the, like, the party leader and the relevant portfolio holder not seeming to be on the same page, um, which, is, which is uncomfortable. And it's also interesting uh, because the Greens do things by consensus. So with their party rooms, they basically like keep talking until everyone is on the same page. So you don't really see um, big disagreements in elected members very often. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's not something which happens a lot uh, with the Greens. And honestly, it could be a negotiating tactic. Oh, that's true. That's true. I hadn't considered that. Um, I do also want to highlight as well that uh, with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, which, you know, kind of set the order, um, it is worthwhile to remember that there was actually a decent-sized grouping that walked out of that statement, uh, which Lydia thought was part of that grouping, Um, basically claiming to have, like, been disrespected and that the, like, Uluru Statement from the Heart was kind of being... um, what's the word it was kind of being facilitated like by big business and things like that um and wasn't really listening to people in politics so. it, well <laughs> <laughs> and it's um uh, the Uluru statement from the heart was uh not built by consensus it was built by democracy in terms of a majority of the people who were there wanted a thing but they didn't require uh agreement from everyone on kind of pushing forward with it um and it's also worth remembering, uh, there's a great quote uh, from Gert by David Hunt, uh, which if you're looking for a book on Australian history is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's the most Australian history of Australia uh, I've come across. Um, he said that the entire concept of Aboriginal people is a European invention. Like they weren't a discrete group who shared uh, things in common until the Europeans got here and put them all into the same box. Um, mm. And so talking about aboriginality now as uh this is one people with one voice and complete agreement is uh untrue uh there is a lot of disagreement within that group and that's absolutely normal yeah look it's that's probably a little bit of a, a a side issue but i think it is important that's always that's always bothered me i'm you know i'm i'm not aboriginal uh but it has always bothered me from my outside perception that suddenly uh, hundreds of nations, and look, I'm sorry, I don't know what the exact uh, number is, but that hundreds of nations could just by wave of a, a pen on a piece of paper be considered to be all the same the same voice. I I feel like that's a little bit of a corruption of the individuality of you know multiple rich cultures so let's say it's a bit of a side point but it's always bugged me as well oh yeah i would also like to point out that i am also not indigenous um my ethnicity is i believe the term is so white (laughs) so white (laughs) oh oh dear (laughs) oh fair enough (laughs) and look i think on the uh also while we're still talking about the the voice I think that it would be a mistake uh, not to have the referendum. I know Thorpe uh, had made the the, the comment uh, in a, a Sydney morning. I think it was in the Sydney morning. Uh, where are we? Sydney morning Herald, first of September. A waste of money. Greens Lydia Thorpe attacks voice referendum ahead of negotiations with Labor, and that was by uh, an article by Lisa Vicenton. She had made the comment about it being a waste of money, that we can go to a treaty without it. I read that and I thought that would be, even regardless of the, sorry, allowing for the cost, that would still be a huge mistake because if the country as a whole felt that they hadn't had an opportunity to have their say, and ironically, if the whole country felt that they didn't have an opportunity to have their voice heard by referendum, there would be no real ownership of the results of the referendum. And the same way with the, um, uh, the, the um, what was the, the referendum called on the... The, the plebiscite. 
plebiscite, yeah, on the same way as people said, well, look, at least we had our say on it. If they have their say on this and the results come from that and we see the voice, people will still be, will be able to content themselves with saying, well, you know, we had a go to, uh, to, to make ourselves known. If it's just a treaty handed down from the government side, I think that just opens it up to not being embraced and being fought against. I personally think that if Thorpe gets her way on that, that would be a big mistake. What, what do you two think? So there's two really important things I'd like to put out there. The first one is that the plebiscite was literally a waste of money. Um, uh, it uh, wasn't binding. Um, it was uh, much the same way that uh, like referenda in other countries we would actually refer to as plebiscites because a referendum changes the Australian constitution. That's the thing that it does. Um, yep. A plebiscite is just kind of a poll. Uh, after the plebiscite on gay marriage, I think it was there was a investigation by the Supreme Court and they basically said we should never do this again because it uh, increased um, uh, hate crimes um, and uh, uh, the emotional well-being of um, LGBTQIA Australians. And we knew that that was going to happen coming in. That is exactly what did happen. It caused more harm than it did. And frankly, we already knew that the country supported gay marriage. Um, so... Uh, just kind of like putting out there in context of, yeah, having a say is kind of important, but on the other hand, the process of having a say gives voice to the opponents, um, which is not necessarily what you want all of the time. Uh, That's a good point. Yep. The other thing I'd kind of point out is that we are talking about the referendum on voice with the assumption that if it goes to referendum, it's going to pass. Uh, and it not passing I think would be incredibly damaging uh, to uh, where the um, relationship between the Australian government and the Indigenous people um, is kind of going. Uh, so kind of just going in with saying, yes, it's important that we pass um, the voice before we move on to uh, truth and treaty. Um, it's like, yes, but is it more likely that the referendum for voice will pass after truth and treaty or mm -hmm. before? Because I think the position of the Greens really does come down to the fact that they say, okay, yes, it is important to have a voice, but the most important thing is that we do have uh, end up with the voice. If we have a referendum and it fails, that kind of scuppers the entire plan and we don't want to go down a route which has that possibility. Mm. Oh. I also think it's... I just kind of want to get your thoughts on the referendum like at the moment. Um how do we think it's going? Do we think it will actually pass at this point? Um, so, yeah. Again, just a little bit of context. In Australia, in order for a referenda to pass, in order for a referenda to pass, there's either um, there's one of two uh, things. Either uh, you need a majority of the Australian people and a majority of the states to vote. So, when I say the states, it means that a majority of people in that state, as well as a majority of the Australian people in general. Um, so you could have a situation where a majority of the Australian people vote yes for something, um, but half the states have a majority no, and so it doesn't end up passing. Um, that's, uh, a, I think it's called a double something. Anyway, um, the third, the other one, though, is uh, if it's a referenda which affects the rights of all Australians, which I don't think this one does, so I think it would just need the first one. Um, you need both... A, majority of the Australian people to vote yes, and also every single state individually to have a majority that votes yes. Um, that's why passing a referenda in referenda in Australia is quite hard. Like it's got a higher level of success um, than in other countries where you just need a simple majority. Uh, so I think it will pass, but I don't know. Also, by the way, when I say states, that doesn't include the Northern Territory and ACT. Yeah, sad for them. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think I've made that uh, comment to you, Bert, before Apricot, uh, that uh, unless there's a significant change in the question, and we've only seen the first draft at the moment, but uh, the direction it headed wasn't particularly good for as far as I'm concerned. Unless that question is changed into, and oh, I know it sounds very awful to say, it, so unless it's changed into a soundbite that people can uh, throw 
uh, throw around quite readily, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to to pass. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that reflects the you know the, the will of the the people, but uh, I think particularly nowadays people are inherently suspicious about um, having the wall pulled over their eyes and the statement and the questions it reads at the moment. I think is too complicated, too uh, too hard to get your head around for people to be feel comfortable with. Uh, voting yes for it. So my opinion at the moment, which I hope will change, is that no, it's not going to pass in its current form. What, what about you, Apricot? What do you think? So I'm generally a pessimistic person. Um, <laughs> I, I, at this point, I'd probably give it 50-50. Um, I, I really kind of feel like the referendum has sort of been abandoned um, by the government. Like, I feel like they've announced it, they've got the, you know, positive buzz around it, and then they're like, okay, on to the next thing. Um, which, you know, maybe, maybe people who know more than I, you know, are like, that's completely wrong. You know, the government's super committed to it. But I'm not so sure at this point, and I feel like if we go to a referendum um, with this kind of attitude, like, like, I have to wonder if the government actually kind of wants it to pass or not, like, or if they're kind of fairly agnostic to the actual result, they just want that positive buzz from it. So I think they do want it to pass because, I mean, at the end of the day, they're the one who's they're putting the referendum up. If it fails, um, that is a big blow to the government. I, I suppose I should qualify. Like, as a whole, yeah, they'll probably be like, yeah, it'd be good for it to pass. Is there... I don't know if there's that drive to run a campaign on getting it passed, though, from their point of view, or if they're just going to be like, no, we're going to let the Australian people decide, whatever. Um, it wouldn't you know what I mean? Until 2023. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you yeah, go, why do you think they might be? Why do you think they might be reluctant? To run that campaign? Yeah, yeah. Mainly just because... The the real sense they get from the government in general is that they just don't really want to rock the boat too much. They just want to be seen as like competent professional politicians, and it they don't want negative sound bites. Yeah, basically. Um, so I, I, anything that requires them stepping outside of Parliament House from like a well like staffed office and whatnot, I don't think they really want to do at this point. Okay, I'm not sure I'd agree with you, but I see where you're coming from. Yeah, well, that's not, that's not well, exactly just you know, t- taking us as a small sample. That's not exactly a resoundingly positive view on the potential outcome of the the referendum. As as you said, Anger, you know, we, we, there's a little bit of time up the our, our sleeves on it, but uh, yeah, I can't say that the three of us are, are putting together a, a high percentage uh, confidence vote in it. I personally think it would pass. Um... Uh, but bearing in mind, like, I do live in an echo chamber, so. Yeah, well, look, yeah. I, I mean, we all have our biases. We all have our, our, our echo chambers, much as we convince ourselves that we, we don't. That's just reality. And you can only really make a decision, uh, give your opinion based on that. So I just thought it was it was interesting, the, the number of qualifiers, uh, the qualifiers in that. I'll have you know that the three people I talk to insist that I'm not in an echo chamber at all. Ah, yeah, that's that's right. And you've voted on it numerous times. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, speak, speaking we... of numbers of uh, numbers of, of people, I'm going to need to get you to explain some of the ramifications of the increase in numbers in the Tasmanian Parliament. If you're happy to move on to that, apricot. I absolutely am, and. Ham. I absolutely <laughs> am. Um, <laughs> and personally, I am actually quite thrilled that the Tasmanian Parliament is increasing. Um, uh, I might let Anger give a little bit of context into why it was decreased. Um, uh, please. But, uh, uh, no? Okay. <laughs> it's, I moved down to Tasmania recently. Like I um, am not behind uh, the history of the Tasmanian Parliament. I can tell you numbers about so, what it will mean. But no. 
All right. Well, the history it was essentially um, it was a fuck you to the Greens. Um, what? A, the Tasmanian Parliament originally had thirty five MPs. Um, they used the Hare Clark Robinson rotation system. That was all going fine, and that was fairly good, decent when you had the two major parties kind of just kind of trading turns at government. Um, but there was a period of time when Labor was in power, where the state was struggling quite financially. Um, it also like was struggling in terms of like uh, welfare and quality of living, and there was a bit of an environmental movement that gained some traction, which would end up becoming uh, what's called the United Tasmanian Group and the uh, Green Independents, which were the forerunners to the Tasmanian Greens and the Australian Greens as a whole. And if you listen to some people, the idea of green politics, uh, like as an ideology. Um, and then they started, they, they did the worst thing that an upstart political party uh, can do, which was they started getting elected. Um, and <laughs> so suddenly we, we had a few, parla- Tasmania had a few parliaments, uh, minority governments, and it got to a point where both the major parties did not like working with the Greens and they voted together to artificially lower, uh, like decrease the amount of MPs, sacrificing a few of their own uh, to make the bar to get elected a lot higher on the quota. I think it went from like 12% to 16% or something. Yeah, so um, Um, just in terms of the maths, the way the Clark system works, the Hare Clark system is you take the amount of uh, votes, um, which we'll just call 100% in this case, uh, and divide it by the amount of seats who are up for election plus one, plus one. So if you've got, uh, they used to have seven seats uh, in each electorate, and the electorates, by the way, have the same boundaries as the federal electorates. Uh, so it used to require 12.5%, so that's one over seven plus one, uh, in order to um, get a quota and be elected. When it changed to five seats per electorate, it went to one in 16 point recurring six. So that's one over five plus one. Uh, So just Ah. pushing that up by 4% or so um, meant that there was a higher threshold for minor parties uh, to get over in getting elected. Four points is a Mm -hmm. lot. Yep. Uh, Yeah, it really was. Um, I believe the Greens at that point uh, had five members of parliament and then they were just coming up to the new election and the major parties were so confident that they had basically screwed the Greens over to such an extent that they actually removed the physical crossbench uh, where they were sitting um, in, in after the election. Oh. However, after after the results were actually confirmed, it turned out that one Green uh, peg putt had managed to cling on. And there's a, there's a fantastic image of her showing up to Parliament where she no longer has a place to sit because they've removed the, her furniture. Wow. Um, and so she she brings a folding, like, lawn chair, essentially, <laughs> to sit on uh, for a little bit until the crossbench could be reinstalled. And it's just it's actually a really powerful image, I think, of having this, like, strong woman sitting in the middle of, like, where the crossbench was, uh, was who shouldn't have been there, essentially. Oh, Metaphorically beautiful. sticking her fingers up to both parties. Huh. Yeah. A little bit of context, again, for the start of the Australian Greens. If people want to know more about this, there's a book called Inside the Greens by Paddy Manning, which um, goes into the entire history of the Greens. The first chapter is on the United Tasmania Group. Um, it coalesced around uh, two campaigns. So the first one is to save Lake Pedder. Um, which was a glacial lake in the middle of Tasmania. Um, If you look on Google Maps there, Lake Pedder is there and it looks huge, but it's actually now a reservoir uh, for the hydro scheme, um, which uh, there's a lot of stuff about this. There's a campaign about saving Lake Pedder or restoring Lake Pedder at the moment, um, and it is actually more likely to happen now than at any point in the future, and there are a lot of good reasons for it to happen. Um, so maybe that's worth us talking about at some point as well. Uh, but that, uh, the Greens or the United Tasmania group failed, um, in saving Lake Pedder, uh, hence the fact that now we want to restore it. Uh, the next campaign was the Franklin Dam campaign. Um, and instead of just trying to get political influence, they actually went out and protested and blockaded and that one worked. So those two 
campaigns kind of like together is where the Australian Greens started as a political movement and also in, uh, informed a lot of the next 20 to 30 years of their tactics uh, in Australia. Okay, and look, the uh, the other glaringly obvious half of the, the the question, thanks thanks both of you for ex explaining that at the beginning, but the other half that's left now is given that the reduction was done as a middle finger to the Greens, now what's in it for them reversing that? What's what's changed and how are both majors using this to, uh, I'm presuming, and you might correct me on this, but how do both majors uh, think this is going to advantage them with regards to the Greens? Why, why the turnaround? Well, because I, I simply don't buy the fact that it's overwork. I do... I do get that, but the reason, the reason that the bureaucrats give you versus the reason they're doing something, usually they don't match up. So, yeah, be curious to know what you two think. Well, I, I, there is really no benefit to the major parties doing this besides their own portfolio holders not holding six or seven portfolios anymore, from what I can see. Um, I don't know, Anger, do you see any kind of benefit for them beyond that? Like, this will benefit the Greens. Um, it will uh, but not as much as people think. Like the Greens, um, much like uh, in the Senate, uh, you can't really call the Greens having the balance of power there because Labour and the Greens combined don't have a majority. Um, uh, and I think we're going to end up with a possible similar uh, outcome uh, in the upcoming Tasmanian election, whenever it is, uh, moving to seven seats because the Greens will get more. Like they currently have two seats, um, based on the last election results, they possibly could have ended up in a seven-seat parliament with, um, let's see, maybe five, but five out of 35 versus two out of 25, it's all kind of much of a muchness. Um, uh, and based on the recent uh, federal election, because as I said, they've got the same boundaries, you could see the Greens ending up with, yeah, possibly five seats. Um doubtful it would go higher than that. It still is not very many. Um, and the Liberals saw a swing to them uh, in Tasmania um, at the federal election. So I don't know why the Liberal Party is in favour of this, apart from democracy, uh, because it is better uh, in terms of giving people more options. But yeah, I... I don't think it's actually really going to change that much because at the end of the day, people still vote the same way and the Liberals still have a majority in Tasmania. Uh, well, that, pu that puzzles me that the, 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 two, that the two majors are not getting an advantage in that. And maybe it's just that uh, it's, it's not able to be seen because you can always sort of pump up more staff so that the uh, minister or minister who's for, for multi-ministers, Morrison style, um, is really almost <laughs> almost a, a, a figurehead. So I would have thought the workload could be solved by throwing money and people at it. That just it, it puzzles me that, that both of you are saying that it's probably going to advantage the Greens. So I, I don't know what's I don't know what's in it for the two majors. There's a possibility it'll advantage the Jackie Lambie network, um, but uh, I mean she does quite well. Uh, on the Herr Clark system in Tasmania for the Senate. Um, but she did run some people at the last state election and they didn't kind of go anywhere at the um, uh, state level. And she did run some seats, uh, some candidates in the lower house uh, at the federal election and that didn't do so well either. So I'm not sure how much Jackie Lambie is gonna be uh, one area pony, uh, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's in general, I think it's good because the more voices you have, the better. Uh, mm. But I don't think it's going to change that much at the end of the day. Hmm. All right. Well, I suppose we'll have to wait and see. But on that note, I think we might look at wrapping up for today because I am aware that we have reached 11 o'clock. I will just say I have in a comment pinned below... Uh, links to all the articles that we've discussed as well as a link to a photo of Peg Putt sitting on the uh, cross bench in Tasmanian Parliament if you guys would like to see that. Um, Anger, Adi, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Apricot. That was Thank that you was very good. much.
Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks, Inga. Awesome. You all have a great day. See cool. you later. Bye-bye. Adios.